Hello and welcome to Kicking It With Karachi, where it's all about diving deep into the cultural perspectives of music and society. Today we're talking all about religion and spirituality and ecstasy in music, which I think you guys can really agree that there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. Today's episode is sponsored by Knots for Tots. So my name is Daniel Kane, and we are also joined today by Avery Walton, Ben Jackson, Delaney Baumgartner, Jojo Kramer, and Halsey Ann Thomas. We hope you enjoy, and as always, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, my name is Jojo Kramer, and welcome to the next segment of our podcast. The segment is titled Hindustani History, and throughout our time together, we'll be focusing on Hindustani, of course, and um, we'll discover how the history and traditions of Northern India have influenced the music within that region. So let's dive right into our discussion. Um, Hindustani is the classical musical system of Northern India. Now you might be thinking, why just Northern India? What about the Southern region? Um, Well, at one point in history, the two regions did share a musical system. However, in the 12th century, um, Northern India broke off from the South due to the musical influence of Muslim migrants. And so now I'm just gonna dive deeper into um, who these Muslim migrants were and how exactly they influenced Northern Indian music. So yeah, many of these migrants were descendants of the Mongol Empire, and they were known as Mughals. So the Mongol Empire was a dynasty of Central Asian Muslim migrants and their descendants, and their power spread throughout much of the subcontinent. I think for many of you listeners, the name Genghis Khan should ring a bell and give you at least an idea of what um, the Mongol Empire was all about, as he was the leader of the empire for quite some time. So some important things to note about the Mughals are they spoke Persian, otherwise known as Parsi, and they also um, they brought Persian cultural influences and traditions to India, specifically northern India, and that created a fusion of Persian and Indian musical systems. With the Mughals' influences, the musical cultures of north and south India began to divide. Um, And from this divide, two systems emerged. So there was Hindustani in the north and Carnatic in the south. So now that we have some background history and information, we'll solely be focusing on Hindustani music. So Hindustani music developed as an orally transmitted tradition whose musical knowledge was owned and guarded mainly by um, Muslim families of professional musicians. So here we can already see some of the influences of the Muslim migrants and how they are the ones that um, that take care and sort of cultivate this music. These, um, these musical lineages are also known as garnas, and by the 19th century, they were very well-defined and were often associated with specific cities and places across northern India. So um, now they're really two different types of these professional musicians. There's um, an ustad, which is a Muslim musical master, and there's also a pandit, which is a Hindu musical master. So in order to become one of these musical masters, you had to go through many years of training and apprenticeship. Um, So as a student apprentice, or shisha, as it's called, you might start off doing... um, some simple household chores for your teacher, otherwise known as your guru, 
And although these tasks are not really what you would expect, the main goal of the stage is really just to be surrounded by the music and um, just trying to absorb as much knowledge as possible. So after that stage in your apprenticeship is complete, only then are you allowed to learn um, actually like substantial information on your, um, on your instrument. Now, there's no specific time range on how long those stages take. It's really more about what the musical secret is. So the more guarded the secret, the longer it takes to move past your stages of apprenticeship. So really, you could be doing household chores for just a few years, or it could even take as long as a decade. It's really dependent on, um, on the musical secret. So now, since we do have a little bit of time, I can address some of our listeners' questions. Um, so I noticed that many of you were curious on Hindustani's relationship with the musical cultures of the Middle East, especially since the music has Persian influences. Um, so really, while the traditions of Middle Eastern music overlaps with that of the Ottoman musical culture, um, the traditions of Hindustani music were influenced by Muslim migrants, as I mentioned earlier. And um, Middle Eastern music is also very focused on um, connecting with God through musical enchantment and ecstasy, while Hindustani still focuses on emotions, but not nearly as heavily. Um, also, in the Middle East, the musical culture is meant to connect God with oneself, so the performers are not really seen as um, more important in any way. On the other hand, in Hindustani musical culture, the musicians are famous for their virtuosity and their bragging. Um, so in other words, the music is not as heavily focused on God, unlike in the Middle East. So I hope that answered um, your guys' questions. Unfortunately, I can't answer the other questions um, in this podcast, but I will definitely be getting back to you through email. So just be on the lookout um, for a response from me. Hey guys, this is Ben Jackson here once again. Like last time, I'm super pumped to be able to be on this week's podcast once again. However, I'm going to be switching up it a little bit this time. On our last pod, I was running the Time for Tango, but this time, I'm going to be leading this episode's political points. Since our last time together on the pod, we switched up all of our roles, so I'm now the politician of our group. For this episode of the pod, I wanted to hit a few points on the Shonabira of Sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa holds some of the most diverse regions in the entire world. In these regions, you can find over 800 ethno-linguistic groups, you can find over 380 languages found in Nigeria alone, you can find all sorts of communities and kingdoms spread out all over these types of nations. However, unlike most of the world, Sub-Saharan Africa areas very rarely follow one set of political boundaries, but instead they follow multiple. I wanted to mainly focus on the Shona Baira. The Shona are people found in Zimbabwe that follow mainly southeastern African traditions. The Baira is an all-day ceremony in which these people summon the spirits of the deceased members of their community. In this culture, they do not consider the deceased to be dead, but instead, they treat them as if they are still alive, and they consider them to be the elders of the community. They believe if they, if, if they offend their deceased ancestors, that bad fortune will be brought amongst them. So if they hold this ceremony, an all-day religious 
an all-day and all-night religious ceremony to essentially keep their ancestors on the good side and to make sure that they do not offend him. The Baira is a ceremony that is held either by a community or just by one family. The primary goal of this ceremony is to interact with their deceased ancestors through the use of spiritual possession. The Shona use this ceremony in order to keep the relationship solid with their ancestors. <coughs> the main instruments that are used within Shona Baira are the Kimbara, the Hosha, which is very similar to a rattle, and the Mbira. Like the majority of Sub-Saharan Africa, Shonabara has a major emphasis on their low buzzing sound that is produced during the ceremony. This ceremony also focuses heavily on singing, clapping, and dancing. There are two parts to this ceremony. There is the Kushahara and the Kutsinhara. The Kushahara is the first part of Shonabara, and they are considered to be the leader of the ceremony. The Kutsinhara is the second part, and they are used to accompany the Kushahara. Now that you have a very basic understanding and very basic background on the Shonabara, I wanted to give you some reasons as to why this affects the political aspects of these communities. Because these communities turn to their elders and their deceased ancestors for all sorts of different things, it is no different when it comes to politics. In these types of communities, Shonabara plays a very significant role in politics. Because these people are afraid of offending their ancestors, they do not want to leave them out of any decision. Like I mentioned earlier, Shonabara is used to communicate and seek advice from their ancestors, and that advice plays a major role in their communities and their political decisions. They communicate everything with their elders, so almost every decision that is made by leaders of these communities is used to seek advice from their elders and their ancestors on what to do and what they believe is best for themselves, their families, and their communities. As I explained earlier, this once again just shows how Shoshona Baira, as well as Sub-Saharan Africa, political views are different than almost the entire rest of the world. So thank you so much for having me here on this week's episode of Political Points, and that is all I have for you today. I hope that you were able to understand the basics of Shona Baira and how it affects certain communities in Sub-Saharan Africa. Once again, thank you guys so much for having me on this pod, and I cannot wait until our next one. Until then, I will see you soon, and see you on our next pod. Today's episode is sponsored by Knots for Tots. Knots for Tots is all about boaters helping kids out. It's all about boaters enjoying what they're doing while helping kids who aren't as fortunate. And it's really good to see so many people coming out and helping, especially during quarantine when some people really need that help. Check them out. Okay, welcome back. Uh, we've been on the topic of religion, spirituality, and ecstasy, and music, and what that really means. Uh, we've been looking at through different angles and how different cultures have incorporated their own specialties in performing and the style, and really the religious meaning that is incorporated into it. I think it's really cool um, looking into this and really seeing how impactful religion is to other cultures and societies. And I think everyone on here, you know, can corroborate that topic. Um, so this section, we're going to call it Keeping It Cool with Kagura. Uh, I want to really dive into how deeply influenced that the Mi Kagura is in Japan. So Japan was, uh, ch Japanese music was kind of a Chinese-inspired um, music, but, you know, it has its own twist to it, as any culture would. 
So religion in Japan has always been a very big thing in the past, and I believe that it's not going to change that in the future. Um, there's a video of the Mikagura being played in modern time, and I think it is just beautiful. It really um, known as godly music or godlike, and there is such a deep quality to its pure sound. And when you listen to it, you can really hear it. It's Shinto or court-type music feeling. But on top of that, you really hear its beauty. It is a very deep and ceremonial-type music. Uh, it's consisting really of male singers in an ensemble of a small size, but that small size really doesn't do it justice because it still is really, really beautiful. You can hear the bamboo flutes and the octave tones that play over top, and it just sings over top in, har in a harmoniously beautiful way. It really gives me goosebumps to listen to, and it's so peaceful to listen to. And it's really made to attract the gods or entertain the gods, which I think is you know, really, really cool. And yeah, I think Avery, yeah, she's giving me a thumbs up and I think she likes it a lot too. I really like how it's a way of communicating with the gods and it's not just music. You know, it's it's a way to establish a good rapport with the gods and what they did was they would try to offer them food, drink, music, and dance and this was their way to communicate with the gods through music, which is, you know, it's beautiful. Um, so there was a Mikagura, which is what we kind of just talked about, uh, got some reactions from the group there, and then there's the Sato Kagura, and you can really hear the two differences in the type of uh, Shinto rituals being played. One is more shamanistic, and that's a shamanistic ritual called the Sato Kagura, which is more of a religious type um, and has a ritual of deep influence, and the other type is the Shinto festival music with small flutes that are in gongs that are called canes, which ironically is my last name. Um, so both these incorporate small foods and other instruments to get that godlike sound to them. And again, the way the music sounds and is played attracts the gods in the ceremonies or entertains the gods. It's all about how it sounds. And, you know, personally, I really like the sounds of, of this festival type music. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what actually goes in on the ceremony from a musical perspective. So at the beginning of a performance, there is a leader, um, and he really initiates the group or the chorus who sings the initial phase, and he kind of gets the ball rolling. And again, it's made of all males. Um, and then it's accompanied by some clappers, and then the unison chorus, and then the rest of the instruments. So you really hear the layers being added up and added up and built upon on each section of the entrance. Um, it's really it's really cool to listen to an experience, and it really shows what I really like out of this shows how deep the meaning is behind music. You know, music from way way back to now, it's all still the same in its roots. It's all a way of communicating and sharing um, how how certain groups of, and people feel, and that really you can see that through this music. One of my favorite quotes is. Uh, music is a way that doesn't hurt you or anyone else to show who you are and how you feel. And I really get that uh, when, you know, listening to this this type of music. And again, it's not just music. It's a spiritual connection through music to the gods. Hey guys, it's Halsey and Thomas. And for this next portion of our podcast, we'll be taking calls from the audience. It looks like we're getting a call from Brad in Massachusetts. Hey Brad, what's your question? Hey, yeah, so I'm in the Farmer School of Business at Miami University, go Red Hawks, and I'm a second year finance major. All of this spiritual stuff is cool and whatnot, but I was wondering how economics plays into this. After all, money runs the world. Love and honor, baby. 
<laughs> Thanks for your question, Brad. Love and honor. With most of the cultures we've studied in this episode of the podcast, we seldom see economical influences in their musical traditions. This is mostly due to the fact that they place more emphasis on creating music for religious and spiritual reasons rather than profitable or monetary gain. However, one genre of music that could that we could see economics factoring um, into would be the Hindustani music. Um, and this is mostly because they battle for what their country can define as Indian culture. Um, here we see the influence of Bollywood films along with other global influences. Um, this can be seen in the context of the Beatles, Punjabi MC or Maya, well, um, Mia, and the uh, A.R. Rahman, which um, his composition was featured in Slumdog Millionaire. The Beatles featured, you know, Hindustani musical um, portions in some of their songs. So you can really see that there's um, an increase in global prominence um, that can result and profitable gain from their production of music, which is contrastingly different from how most other cultures um, use music um, as discussed in this cast. And however, though, there are some examples where you can see how economical patterns in the context of colonialization, per se, um, and trade has resulted in outside influences on musical practice. Uh, so, while the music itself may not be monetarily profitable, we can see how it has had different aspects of economic results. Um, an example of this is seen in the Hindustani musical culture, and the influence it has culturally received historically with Middle Eastern countries. Um, as these places potentially sold and bought goods from one another, you know, you have those trade routes, you have markets where people can go and buy products, um, you can really start to see how individuals can pick up musical influence as well, influences as well, uh, whether it be seen, you know, on the street as they're playing a performance or heard as you walk through, you know, the city, um, and so in addition to this, you know, there's migrational patterns as well. Um, people move for reasons, whether it be a job or a living opportunity. Um, and when you see these migrations of people and these patterns changing in population densities and movements and shifts, um, it affects the consumer markets. And that also overall affects the economy of the region. You know, there are more people living there their markets will either do better or worse depending on the situation. So with these migratory individuals, um, they comes their traditions. People bring what they know with them to new places. This is seen, for example, in the United States when you have Long Island, for example, with the Italian culture and, um, you know, everywhere you go, people bring those traditions that are safe to them. So finally, colonialization has a major impact on both economies and cultures, and as a result of this, many cultures have other religious influences intertwined within their own, 
as they tried to preserve their traditions while also obliging by the forces and standards of those influences. Um, you know, this is seen where we have the mixing of Catholic culture and African deities, um, the saints and the in the, their spirits, they try to find middle ground with those two things. So, while these cultures do not place emphasis on monetary gain for their production of music, we can see how economic factors have had a role and a play and an influence in the different aspects of their musics. As you can see, you know, with migration patterns as mentioned, or in some cases in that globalization of their traditions. Thank you for your question, Brad. Tune in to our next segment. Hi, welcome to the Ambassador's Account. I'm Avery Walton, and I'm your ambassador for this episode, which means that this segment focuses more on cultural aspects and how these cultures have been globalized, as well as how cultures have been affected by colonialism and, like, the foreign relations. For this week's episode, uh, Ambassador Account, we will be focusing on Hinduism, and more specifically, its musical Hindustani culture that is prevalent in northern India. First of all, I'd like to comment on India's overall global impact. Many of you have probably heard of Bollywood, as these films are well-known in countries surrounding India, and Bollywood-inspired dances are taught all around the world, including in the United States. Uh, yoga and Buddhism are other great cultural aspects of India that are seen and practiced all throughout the world. Even on a more musical level, most of you have probably heard of the sitar, which originated in India. Uh, sometimes with these other cultures that we've been learning about throughout this podcast have instruments that are exclusive to them, or that people like us from the United States have rarely heard of, yet the sitar is an instrument from, other, from another culture that we do recognize and was very popular with artists like the Beatles. Uh, now to focus more on the colonial impacts of Hindustani culture, a great portion of the South Asian subcontinent that includes India was once a part of the Mughal Empire. As this allowed Islam to have an impact on uh, Hinduism and Hindustani music because Hindustani formed in northern India, as this was previously the area of India where Islam was primarily spread to. And India, like India and the greater subcontinent of South Asia, later on started to trade and have other relations with many European countries like Portugal, the Netherlands, Great Britain, and France, as Great Britain ultimately took over the same area of the uh, Mughal Empire had. And this also had some lasting cultural impacts that we'll get into later on. So that's just like some background information on, you know, um, like a lot of the influences on their culture today. And since part of the section of the podcast also focuses on cultural aspects uh, with the whole ambassador part of it, uh, I think it's important to include that the Vedas have greatly shaped Hinduism and Hindustani that comes from it. The Vedas are the Hindu form of scripture, and this basically gives some insight into the Hindu culture because the recitation of the Vedas is also uh, more important than the praise and offerings that are spoken of like within them. So if they are not spoken properly, then the offerings that go along with them essentially mean nothing to their gods. Uh, what's also interesting about this is that for a long time, the Vedas were passed down only orally. So they didn't even have a written scripture to reference from with all these specifications. Along with these strict regulations in reciting the Vedas, there's also a strict caste system that came from it. As there's a whole level of the caste that is essentially on the outside of it all. And this level is referred to as the untouchables. 
as this just shows how the English roots still have an impact on them because they have such an apparent like translation, whereas there are other terms within Hindustani that are entirely their own and don't even have as clear of translation, such as Rasha, which has a translation that is somewhat similar to mood or emotions, but it's not as like specific as the untouchables translation. Uh, the Rasha is a concept that also traces back to music from Greece, in which happy music is essentially meant to make one happy and sad music is quote unquote supposed to have the listener be sad. There's this deep connection between the music and its response from the listeners and all of those involved in it. Uh, this is not necessarily to say that Greece has impacts on the formation of Hindustani music and culture, but this just goes to show how there is a global idea of how music can inhibit and affect the individual that was incorporated into Hindustani. And Hindustani continues to globalize this idea through how widespread it is, along with other cultural aspects of India and South Asia. Also, going back to this idea of the untouchables, uh, musicians were often grouped in with this class, as Hindu music and performances often took place in British courts. This shows how the British rule still has an impact on them today, as they carry on the Hindustani music traditions. Uh, now, we like to email our audience and listeners with the general topics for each episode ahead of time so that they can send in their questions. So one of the questions we received for this episode is, why are some aspects of Hindustani culture of English origins, or at least easily translate to English, while some seem to be uh, much more distinct from English? Um, so one of the great aspects to consider with this is that Islam was also very prevalent in the same area that Hindustani originated from, as we saw with the Mughal Empire. And there was also influences from Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism that are all prevalent all throughout parts of South Asia, especially in India. And aside from all of these surrounding cultures that may have been incorporated, I'm sure that Hindus also wanted to distinct themselves and define aspects as their own, as we've seen that they are very particular about certain aspects of their practices, such as the recitations. Uh, there may not have been any concepts in other cultures that truly reflected what they were aiming for. So to be as specific as possible, they may have had to just incorporate completely new terms and ideas. Uh, so that's all for this week's episode. Uh, or section of ambassador account and we'll see you next time hi my name is delaney baumgardner and welcome to shaman stories um we are going to be focusing on native american culture and the spirituality and how it affects their music so um, to get a little more into how Native American culture focuses on spirituality, their main um, objective is to, they believe that man is not the center of existence. There's something greater out there. It is, their music is measured on supernatural power. They believe very, very highly in people taking over and showing people things through themselves. So um, humans don't really get the credit of coming up with music and coming up with different things. And this is the whole idea of the shaman. And they exist in cosmos, um, they're spiritual beings, participants, in religious movements believe that dance would help them combat the white people. And they believed it would purify participants, raise the dead, and it would bring back the buffalo. So this was 
especially found in ceremonies and different songs and very, very highly seen. Um, the dance that I was just talking about is called the D Ghost Dance. It is founded in Great Basin, in the Great Basin area, Utah and Nevada, during an era era of great poverty, heavy relocation and disease. So this is one of those things where it is very looked at as the spirituality is going to help them and is going to make their music better. And the next section that I'm going to talk about is peyote music. Now this is intertribal overlay on individual tribal styles. And that is the biggest thing that I want you guys to take from that is that idea. And the, this is very, it's based on the hallucinogenic buttons of a cactus from Mexico. Um, religious has a distinct song repertoire and this is incorporates Christian texts into English. I hope you guys enjoyed this segment of the podcast, and I will see you guys next week. Following the topic of today's music, our theme song was written by Joseph McDade. Check out Joseph and some of his fantastic creations on his website, josephmcdade.com music. As always, tune into our next episode. We will see you next time.